The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of The Wizard Files, the special podcast interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine, as well as comic book professionals who give us an inside look at the 90s comic book industry and beyond. This time around, we have a guest with a 20 plus year history in the world of comic books. Having attended the Joe Kubert School, worked professionally for DC Comics, organized his own comic book conventions, and is currently publishing his own comics that make a difference world. Worldwide. Coming to us all the way from Italy, it's our pleasure to welcome to the show, Charlie LaGreca Velasco. How are you? Oh, ciao, mi amico! <laughs> Hey, <laughs> that was all the Italians cheering from the soccer stadium. Of course. Right down the way. <laughs> now, it's kind of fun how we connected here. My wife is a doctor. She just went to work in your brother's practice. And all of a sudden yeah, I'm hearing, bro. oh, yeah, my, my brother's been in comics forever. He worked for DC. He did all these things. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay, well, we got to talk to him. Well, hopefully I can hold a conversation because quite honestly, everyone, I am staring at Adam's lair of geekness and it is very powerful. It is drawing me and I see long boxes. I see old wizard covers. Those are VHS tapes, I think. Yes, part of, part of a large collection here. First of all, real quick, because you mentioned to me that you have a history in podcasting about comic books. What, 15 years ago? Yeah, geez, was it? I have even been a little, I don't know. Now I don't know. My mind is getting weak. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mr. Phil and I, he was my co-producer, was just at the beginning, Adam. The very first podcast I ever listened to was actually a Dungeons and Dragons podcast, but it was super, like they were recording their sessions, but it was at a time when they haven't become as like entertaining as now. You know, now everyone is like doing voice actors and they're, they have a flair to them now, whereas back then it was just very high intense gaming nerdery, you know? And so you just <laughs> do them play and it was like, well, I guess I'll go into the whatever room and it was not as entertaining it was just real and so i was loving listening to this one podcast where they were doing it for no other reason than just to share their dungeons and dragons podcast which then led me to hear comic geek speak you know which was one of the very first and i started sending them little radio bits about manga because i'm a big manga fan and anime fan and the one thing i saw missing at the time was anything about indie comics because i've always been into indie comics it kind of was a big deal for me and still is today and so uh I talked to my buddy Phil. We went and had lunch in New York at this little diner. And I said, what do you think we do one of these things called a podcast? And it'll just be all independent comics. And so we started. We did almost 200 episodes. It was really fantastic. We had a great run. We had some really wonderful, legitimate interest from varying outlets at the time. But it was still so new. I think it hadn't quite you know, taken fire like it has now. And met so many friends and so many creators now that have Netflix series and friends that have these you know, amazing films. And you know, just all these wonderful things where we're ushering in this new age of comic gather through this podcast and and there was no other podcast like it at the time so all of these independent creators and even just people that like mainstream comics who are listening to us you know we had alan moore as a guest we started getting all this good recognition and so many wonderful memories and but it was just hard to sustain you know for me because i'm an artist and i'm so kind of out of my brain so <laughs> i don't know but that's so awesome you know? yeah i mean that that's a good run 200 episodes i mean just yeah you guys are at what you're at 200 we're growing here we're probably at about 150 right now so yeah we're yeah, closing okay. in <laughs> yeah it was a really great time you know and going to conventions and we'll come back one day 
because I'm kind of very playful like your show. You know, I would always do songs and create maybe sketches or comedy bits and stuff around the creators. And we were also USA Today's top five best podcasts of like, I don't remember, 2005 or something or four or nine. I don't remember the date, but yeah. USA Today. Yeah, wow. yeah. We're like, whoa, look at this. <laughs> now, but we're, we're talking about this modern age of technology. I feel like we got to go back yeah. a little bit. Let's talk about this. How did you first discover comic books and really what were your favorites growing up that you found? Oh boy. My earliest memories were, of course, finding comic books actually in the closet in my brother's bedroom. Kind of like they had been reading them. It was that I was picking up the leftovers, you know, like Captain America's laying on the ground or whatever else that they kind of just didn't even care about. My brother, Jeff, who I collaborate with a lot, he, of course, loved comic books, as did one of my other brothers, Greg. But the rest of my brothers, I come from a big family. So, you know, Brian, yeah. Brian was definitely not into him as much. He's like, whatever, you know, he was out in the back dissecting rabbits. No joke. He, that's what he was doing. <laughs> Always the scientist. Like, what's Brian doing in the shed? Is he okay? Is he all right? <laughs> Jeff and I, on the other hand, were super nerds. We were just eating up everything that was, you know, sci-fi related, comic book related, Dungeons and Dragons, just all, everything. It was literally like, you know, like what you think of, you know, as the classic 80s childhood, you know, for us, really wonderful. And so I was picking up a lot of those Marvel comics. I remember picking up really old Samariner. I think it was number six with Tiger Shark on the cover. And that just stunned me. That big fin and his outfit, you know, was so cool. And I loved the idea of this prince who lived underwater, you know, it just got me. And then eventually what led me into my early adulthood as a 16, I got my first job. Guess where, Adam? Huh? Mile High Comics. Huh? Hey! Mile High Comics. Hey! <laughs> so I, like, comics is in my blood, dude. It's just not even a choice. You I were growing it. up in Colorado then? Right. And I was scared to death of Chuck Rosansky. And um, he used to wear these red Converse shoes. You knew him. As soon as you saw his feet, you're like, oh, there's Chuck Rosansky. But I got a job working for him at their new warehouse that they had just acquired in Denver, North Denver, kind of. And they were delivering that summer the Mile High 2 collection. Now, do you know about the Mile High collection? No, oh, let's hear about this. Guys? Yeah. Oh, my God. Really? Well, well I okay, mean, I, I know I, I, about I, I, that they have a million comics in a giant warehouse. But yeah, I'm just yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, there's the there's a Mile High collection, right? And then there's the Mile High 2 collection. Okay. Mm -hmm. So kind of given everyone, some people may know this or not. But so back in like the early 80s, Chuck Rosansky is known for finding amazing comics. And there was this amazing illustrator in Denver, Colorado named Edgar Churcher. Go look him up. In fact, I'm still trying to acquire an original piece by him because I have a real deep affinity for him. Because what Edgar Church did was unbeknownst to himself, like he didn't realize the value that comics would have. So he was buying two to three copies of every comic since the 1930s or something. And so he was buying everything in doubles and triples. And he was using one copy as a reference usually because a lot of times if you look at his art, go look it up, Adam. He does these wonderful beautiful illustrations and incredible designs and logo designs. He was doing everything and, and he loved comics. So he would sometimes do comic pages and stuff too, or try and fit them in somehow. But when he passed away, the story goes, and correct me if I'm wrong, everyone look it up, but I'm just kind of going through memory, is that his family took all the comics, are you ready? And they put them in the alley to be picked up for trash. Someone found out. I was like, no, don't let that happen. So they caught, somehow Chuck Rosansky found out is the story. Maybe you get him as a guest and he can tell you the story. But basically someone went over there, dragged all of them in, went through them all and discovered, holy shit, this is a collection that only comes once in a lifetime. So Chuck acquired it. 
made a deal with them. I don't know. Some people say it was a very true deal. I don't know what that deal was. Let's say maybe he gave them a very low offer knowing that they had gold in them hills. Lo and behold, that became a huge hit. If you look up Mile High Collection, you will see they're certified and stamped as being near mint condition. It was prior to CGC, right? So it was his ability to be like, hey, look, we're looking these over. So I got a job as one, a checker, which was I was one of the people who learned how to grade the comics and I would check them and I would go over them and I'd grade them. So I learned from Chuck's team of experts. That wasn't my first job. My first job was just unloading the truck, the Mile High 2 collection, which they found on the East Coast. And it's another shady AF story where (laughs) Chuck apparently got news of a giant warehouse. You've talked about this on your show before. You remember how they would have the comics where they'd rip the covers off? Right. Well, then they also had the covers. Did you ever hear about this where they dip them in ink or something or they put ink on the top? No. And they would do it to ruin them, but they wouldn't rip the covers off. So they were doing some kind of process. I forget, but they would put ink on the top or something that was purple or blue so that you knew it was a lower, it would kind of ruin the grade, right? And then you could buy it for cheaper or something, right? Was the I think the idea. Someone will correct me for sure. But basically, Chuck found out about Mile High 2 collection, which happened that summer, and I was really excited about it. And I got to work, and it was going to be these semis that were going to pull up full of these comics they found in a warehouse that also supposedly uh, had a lot of illicit, really bad, like, pornography stuff, is what I've heard. So... We got these trucks in. These are all the things you hear when you're unloading the trucks. Like, did you hear where these came from? They came from this crazy warehouse in the East Coast that was full of all this like crime and mob bosses and all this other stuff. I have no idea if that stuff was real, but it stuck with me. So I got to unload over the whole summer all those comics and got to see Near Mint X-Men 1 and Near Mint Daredevil 1 and stacks of them bound with like little ropes. Imagine that, right? You're just seeing these incredibly gorgeous Avengers comics that have just not been touched, not seen the light of day, things like that. And then that got into the job of where I got to sit down at a table a few times a week and I would grade them and put them in these bags and they would have the certificate that Chuck would sign and stamp and emboss that would be like, this is part of the Mile High Collection. And, you know, you'd see ones that didn't meet the grade. Quite honestly, there were several, you know, and so you would toss them aside and pick the ones that were the most pristine. I got to do that for the rest of the summer or whatever, too. And that was a blast. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Dude. And then, you know, the sad thing is, I'm so mad because I had a chance to buy Spider-Man number one for $100. Ugh. Those missed opportunities. You know, one of those dumb things, you know? We were like, well, yeah. I, in my mind, I was like, it's just going to only go up a little bit. It won't go up like a lot. Like, it's just going <laughs> to... <you know? laughs> now, let's talk about this then. So, obviously, you, you are in kind of this world of people like looking for the best issues, the deepest collection of back issues to be found as advertising comic books. But how would you describe the comic book fan community in that era, in the 80s? It was, wow. Just to be truthful, it really was a boys club. It was just a lot of us boys, you know, and I don't mean that in any other way than the reality, right? Like, I think we only had two or three women that worked at the warehouse and really has changed. I'm so glad to see that it's changed. It's so much more diverse and inclusive and all this kind of stuff, right? But back then it really was. I mean, this is why I love comics because I always love like a home with the alternative. I love the home with my buddies who we kind of were outcasts. I wasn't into the mainstream. The thing I love about comics is they were the counterculture. And I got busted one time in school because I was hiding my comics inside my book like you do you see people do and I got busted for that and got detention and got in trouble and I had to sit at the back of the class for like I remember like several weeks because they caught me with my comic book because I just was so into the comics so there was this real true counterculture but with that counterculture came a lot of fun characters you, know, you have a lot of nerds a lot of super nerds you know you have a lot of 
people that are very brainy. You also had some punk rock people. There was one guy at the warehouse, Jeff. I remember him. He was like this punk rock cool dude. You know, he was like in his 20s. And he was like the cool guy, you know? And I would always be like, what should I be collecting? Like, what's cool? You know, so he really like taught me a lot about like Love and Rockets and all these cool punk rock indie books that I kind of wouldn't maybe have seen. And working at the warehouse really kind of introduced me to that. And then also, you know, you had other characters. And I remember, remember another guy named Jeff and I loved him. He had, he always wore the same freaking army pants, same army pants <laughs> every day. And I was like, does he have like 30 pairs of these pants? Because it never changed. And they were always clean. So it wasn't like he was wearing like, it was literally like he had the same outfit. And he was just one of those super nerds that was just so fun and lively, you know, like a lot of us have. And then you also have the guys who just know everything like you, where you just pull this knowledge out of your, like, I don't know where you pull it from. It's another dimension in your brain. And you just are like, oh yeah, remember when such and such. And you always things out that a lot of our brains. As, as far on. as I'm concerned, it's still 1995. So that's, <laughs> I just never left. <laughs> well, you're not pulling anything out. It's just, you're still in 1995. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're being exposed to all, you know, this great independent stuff and the, obviously seeing the mainstream yeah, yeah. stuff and the history of it. So what made you take the jump and say, hey, I could start doing this myself? Just a natural love of it, but also seeing um, the black and white boom, you know, Dave Sim, Elf Quest was huge because my mom and dad got me my first ever Christmas gift that I still have to this day, which was one of the colored volumes of ElfQuest, you know, and I was only like 12 years old or something because I'd never even seen it. I did have access to the comic store, but it was really hard for me to get to, you know, back then. Although we did have the 7-Elevens and stuff like that with comic books. That's really how I got into comics was I would ride my bike every week or walk to 7-Eleven with my friend Frank Romero, one of my best friends. And we would always go get, you know, comics every week. Or try to once we really once you start learning, right? Because I've heard you guys talk about this. Once you start learning, oh, these come out every week. Oh, and then you start learning there's all the different titles and the different characters and the different writers and teams, you know. It all starts slowly. It's it's like the matrix. Everything starts opening up as you learn more and more about it. And so I was in high school and I never showed anyone my artwork except Frank, maybe my brother Jeff. And I was a terrible, terrible artist. But in my mind, I just knew I wanted to draw comics. I saw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It was not a mainstream cartoon yet. It wasn't even the brand that it is today you know this like trillion dollar brand that it is today it was literally just these two guys creating this comic out of their little house or whatever right and so when you were reading these comics and you read the back and it would be a letters from dave's right or it would be letters from richard and wendy peeney or it would be from eastman and laird telling you hey we just did this at our kitchen table this issue and we used all of the zipatone and we only had this much zipatone. So all of those stories where they would tell you things that you're getting the back, you start realizing, oh, they're not affiliated to some big editor editorial team. They're not affiliated to some corporate brand. They can kind of do it themselves. That being the case, of course, I wanted to work for Marvel at DC at the time, you know, and I had my superhero team, you know, that I created with Frank and my brother, you know, like all of us did. I think it was the Guardians, but it wasn't the Guardians of the Galaxy because the Guardians of the Galaxy were kind of like not popular then. Yeah, so we had the Guardians. Yeah. I think is what we were, ours were called, <laughs> and they took place in Denver, Colorado. Of course, they lived in Colorado. Yeah, so I started drawing that, and in high school, I just started telling people, "Oh yeah, I'm going to draw comics. I'm going to draw comics one day." I was so terrible. I, I just set my mind to it, but I kept it a secret. You had to keep your comics and your love of comics a lot of times a secret. A lot of us from that time period know that, but a lot of people I think don't realize that you really would get beat up. And I, I even had a classic friend who, when I turned like 18, he was modeling and he was really good looking, and he told me literally. Don't tell anyone that I collect comics. Or when I see you at the comic store when we're in high school and school, don't tell anyone that you saw me. Like, keep it secret. Like, and it was our, like, bro code. Like, oh, okay. Okay. I won't. I won't, you know. <laughs> because back then, you really would get picked on for it. It really was an issue. And you'd wear your T-shirts under things, hidden. You know, my, my mage 
shirt or my Grendel shirt or my Batman shirt. My friend Frank was wearing Batman shirts before I saw anywhere wearing Batman shirts. And he, he collected them like religiously, you know, and he had all these Batman shirts that were hard to get a hold of, right? Because uh, you didn't have Walmart mass producing. What really kind of got me into Comic-Con was the Colorado Comic and Art Convention, I believe was the very first Comic-Con ever in Colorado. And I went there when I was 12 years old. And it was done by a few people that are now friends of mine. Kevin Robinett, his brother, Kevin Robinett, we just lost recently, which was really sad. And um, a lot of these wonderful guys who predate me, who were buying Marvel comics and stuff right when it came out, like uh, Fantastic Four number one and all that. And Dude, to sit with these guys is a, is a gem. You sit with them and you hear them talking about that. And I just soak it up. I just let them talk because they have so many wonderful stories. But I went to their convention when I was 12 years old, couldn't even drive. My mom dropped me off and I had a, a rough meeting with a guy named Bill Sienkiewicz or Sienkiewicz, as I used to call him. Sienkiewicz. <laughs> I thought that's how you pronounced it. Yeah. Hey, Bill Sienkiewicz. Yeah. I love Moon tonight. <laughs> I wanted you to sign my number one Moon tonight, please. <laughs> so I had a bad run in with Bill Sienkiewicz, which made me really sad. And I was sitting on the staircase in this Colorado Comic Convention. And my friend Frank Romero, who I mentioned, came running in and he's like, oh, my God. Turn that frown upside down because you know what? There's some guy who'll draw you Batman, Enemy Ace, or Tarzan for free. You gotta go see this guy, Charlie. So I'm like, what? So I like haul my backpack full of Moon Knights and all these other comics that I was looking to get signed. Comics that Bill Sincatch didn't even draw, but I asked him to sign because you know I didn't know any better. And it's Joe Kubert. And Joe Kubert is I come into this room and Joe Kubert has this piece of work he was working on of Tarzan. Must have been I don't know, 36 inches by 18 inches high. Like, I mean, giant. And he's just freehanding Tarzan in the jungle. And everyone in the room is just like, you know, their jaws are just agape. And we're like, who is this guy? You know, and at that point, I'd never really come to, I mean, I knew of these names, obviously. I knew of Bill Sienkiewicz. I knew of these people. But then to see someone creating it in front of you with such skill and mastery, and then to have him turn to you with such a kind face and say, hey, what do you want? I'll draw you, you know, Batman or Enemy Ace or, you know, Tarzan. And so I, I had a Batman drawn for me and I still have that today. I stuck in a little my learn. I still have that today. And of course that made me realize who Joe Kubert was, which then led me to start understanding the ads in the book were Joe, the Joe Kubert school, which then had me do a videotape of myself drawing the flash, which I sent to Joe Kubert to try and get into his school. <laughs> Cause the first time I wrote them, I was denied. So then I decided maybe if I shoot a video of me drawing the flash, Hey, you know, they'll let me in. And so that led to my venture into going to the Joe Kubert school. Yeah. That is so fantastic. Yeah, that was going to be my next question here. So you were there for what, 1991 to 1994? Is that right? Yeah, I was. And, you know, prior to that, I actually went to regular college where they pretty much laughed me out because it was the fine arts program. And I was I kept drawing comic book covers and my own comic characters. And especially back then, they didn't understand it. They didn't even understand character design back then or that kind of concept of world building, you know, so which I didn't either. But I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I just, Joe Kubert just constantly kept rolling back in my head. So I did apply. I didn't get in the first time. And then the second time I did get in. And it was a life-changing experience. And having Joe as my mentor was just, I would not sell it for anything. And the friends I got from there and my experiences at Joe Kubert school were just, I just love that school till death. It just means so much, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, like you say, everybody's seen it. A lot of people probably applied, especially during that era when the boom was happening and everybody's thinking, well, I'm going to be the next guy. I'm the guy. So while you were there then, I'm assuming you probably 
had, uh, you know, classmates who went on to accomplish things and publish things just like you have. And then also those who kind of came in with that, you know, oh, I'm, I'm the next big thing. And so, Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so who, who comes to mind for you as far as like contemporaries that you got to be friends with, that you've appreciated their work beyond? And then what was kind of like a defining moment in your education there? Well, contemporaries, have you ever heard of Todd McFarland or Jim Lee? They were not my oh. contemporaries. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't at the school. Uh, no, I had a lot of great contemporaries. And you know, what's really neat when you were like, I heard, you know, you were just saying just now, you know, people come in and they're excited and then you have the guys who actually make it. I'll never forget. It was like Animal House because Joe Kubert started this school out of this mansion, this beautiful Victorian mansion in Dover, New Jersey. And then he had so many famous comic artists come out of there. By the time I got there, you know, it was 15 years or more in its creation. So they now were using the mansion as the dormitories, and I got to live in what was the carriage house where they put the horses. So imagine what that was like. I got stories from that place, you guys. That's a whole <laughs> other podcast. And then he bought this elementary school, and that was the new Kubert school. And it was incredible. I felt like I was at Xavier's gifted you know, school for the talented and gifted. And I'll never forget when Mike Chen, who I love dearly, he's one of the teachers there. And he was like, in his first class, he's like, look around you. There's 25 in my class. There was five classes of 25. The heyday of the 90s, like you said, right? Comics are booming. Foil covers are coming out. Jim Lee's working on the X-Men. Todd McFarlane is an image. Like, Wizard Magazine's coming out. It's just like everything is coming through. It's just craziness. It's just this explosion of talent and energy. And Mike Chen is like, look around the room. Out of all of you, by the end we get to your third year, there'll only be 15 of you left. And not just of this class, but every class. He's like, mark my words. By the end of our third year, there was 14 of us left. And it was really true. It was really a matter of, you know, do you have the drive, not even the talent as much, just the desire and the drive and the passion to, to handle what the Joe Kubert school had, I think, personally, looking back on it as an adult. Some people didn't like this school at all. It didn't work for them at all. That's okay. But for me, it set up a very strict kind of uh, flow of what comics are. And, uh, you know, Joe used to say you're a mercenary for hire, and, and it really kind of taught you that, you know. And some of my contemporaries, a lot, Sergio Cariello, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was in my class, uh, David Bowler. He was working on Nightwatch. He was a black character. Okay. Um, and David Bowler was doing these amazing Alphonse Mucha pages. I think he was only probably like 18, 19. He was incredible. He's from Sweden or Austria. I forget right now. But he was working Fernando Ruiz, who went on to do Archie. Uh, Keith Champagne, who's a regular inker. Um, God, so many people. Jamie Burton, who just is an incredible artist who did work for Amazon, and now he's creating for Pokemon. Uh, my friend Jason Zayas, who art directed all the games for Harry Potter and all these other amazing video games. Javier Pineda, who went on to do The Simpsons. Like, just all of these amazing friends that I was drawing next to and living with every day. Some of them actually living with, fortunate enough or not. And <laughs> I, I feel bad for them living with me. But just an incredible time being with all of these people who are my peers. Richard Miller. God, all of these great creators. And I know I'm not even listing all of them. And the really neat thing was uh, getting to see them get work prior to us graduating, right? And the class ahead of us, there's a few guys in the other class and you'd look to them and you know, you're like, oh my God, you see the third year guy? Some of them got work. One of them's doing Aquaman. And one of the other guys was doing the Punisher. And you know they start getting this work and it's so exciting because you really start seeing how the school is fundamental and connecting us to the real fiat in real world comics, right? And so then in the third year I started, I got to do uh, some work for Ken Branch on a series back then that was hilarious, Dark Star, you know, just doing little backgrounds and inking backgrounds and things like that. And Keith Champagne was working on the X-Men and 
David Bowler, like I told you, was doing some stuff. Sergio Cariello was getting real work for D-Comics. All of these guys were starting to launch their careers way ahead of me. And so it was just exciting, you know. So then what was your earliest published comic book assignment? You know, the very first comic work, I think, probably was working for Ken Branch. Yeah, like doing the backgrounds for Dark Star. Yeah, I believe it was that. Yeah. So it was just, it was just cool. And watching Ken's, you know, look at learning from Ken, how he was inking and just, oh my God, it was Joe fostered that idea that part of learning was, you know, the natural progression of a mentor and kind of like learning from other people. Of course, the biggest thing was just do, 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 just keep going, keep going. And then we also, you know what was so cool, Adam? We had Adam and Andy, his sons, right there in the school with us. And guess what? Their studio was right below us. So I played basketball with Andy on Thursday nights and got to know him and his wife, Teresa. And Adam as well. And what super cool dudes and great guys and seeing how they were picking up the mantle from their dad and drawing every day in the, in their studios. And it was so much fun to go visit those guys. Yeah. Well, and obviously they were featured in wizard magazine quite a bit. Oh my God. Yes. What can you tell us about your relationship and the other guys, you know, in your class with (laughs) wizard magazine during this era, what did you guys think of the the comic book industry in general, what was happening? And then like, as you're reading the pages, like what stood out to you? Wizard magazine was a really interesting new thing. You know, it kind of reminds me of like the big action films that we need in society or culture. They have a place or in the nineties there, I don't know if it's even around anymore, but you know, we had GQ magazine and then we had these other really kind of weird skin kind of rags, like Maxim magazine. Do you remember? Oh Maxim? yeah. We remember Maxim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You remember Maxim? They had like the centerfold in the middle, but the girls were never naked, but it was a Maxim. So I kind of thought of wizard as like filling that pocket of that Maxim magazine for comics in a way, if that makes sense. It's like, it's kind of like the, you know, one part of you, you just revel in it. Cause like cotton candy and another part you're like this is kind of guilty dirty and filthy at the same time in a way here's what i mean by that you had all these other comics magazines at the time alter ego amazing heroes which is one of my favorites to this day still you know heidi mcdonald was on the beat there and there were so many great writers for amazing heroes who clearly loved comics so much and they were all these black and white ones right like wizard magazine i think started black and white so you had like comic scene alter ego the buyer's guide you had comics journal all of these ones that were black and white Right. And also kind of just only rooted kind of so serious in this little area of comics. And here comes Wizard being like, oh, yeah, here's what comics are. We have Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarlane, you know, all this all this color and, and vibrancy. And so a part of me just loved that we were getting that attention. Finally, someone like understands that comics deserve like they're so big and so amazing. And so I love that aspect of it a lot. Though the interesting aspect to counter that was that it felt like sometimes it lost the artistic side of it, right? It focused on the collector's market sometimes too much or the idea of just superheroes, you know, purely superheroes. Not that I don't love superheroes, but that, you know, that comics can be so much more than that. And so that was a natural curse, you know, and then also their collector's guide, you know, pricing guide that they would have. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. And, sometimes, and you were like, where are they getting these prices from? Because I would go to the comics store and be like, Hey, you know, such and such is worth $50. And they'd be like, yeah, that's what Wizard Magazine says. But what does the buyer's guide say? The buyer's guide says this. And so we would agree to like fall in the middle. So I really loved uh, Wizard Magazine. I loved the casting call because it was the first time, you know, we all had our, as kids, we all were like, oh, who would be the best Hulk? Oh, who would be a really cool Spider-Man, you know? So we would have these discussions and arguments in our basements all the time. <clears throat> so to see a magazine pulling that out to the front and being so exciting to actually say Jean-Luc Picard should be, you know, Professor X and then call that real and it became a reality. I really do think there was something rooted in those wizard magazines that led to that choice. Like, how cool is that that has a real connection there? 
the symbiosis. So on that sense, Wizard Magazine was absolutely exciting. And I, I couldn't wait to kind of like read it. Another part of me, like I said, was kind of like, felt like it was a rag a little bit. And I don't mean that as mean, but I was getting like my more punk rock stuff from the Comics Journal or Amazing Heroes or things like that, where I was getting a little bit more subversiveness, you know, getting some of that indie stuff. Because Wizard, understandably so, was, was pitching to who it knew read the magazine. And believe me, I was eating that up. But then another part of me was missing out on all the indie stuff and all the subculture stuff and, and the stuff that was also making waves in comics that they wouldn't yet know about. Yeah, they had one column. They had Tom Palmer Jr. doing Palmer's picks, spotlighting the indies, and then yeah, for in general, it was unless something was making a big splash on its own. Yeah, yeah, it was, and and admittedly so. You know, the whole image and Marvel thing blowing up at that time. I mean, it was dominating everything, and why shouldn't it have been? It was just super exciting, you know. And DC trying to hang in there. And so, speaking of which, then, how did you go about getting hired to work at DC Comics? Oh, Kubert Skull, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I had his whole plan. Like, you know, just everything is a stepping stone. I remember um, we got to go to Valiant Comic and try out for Valiant, try out for the bullpen of Marble. I just called them Marble at Marvel. <laughs> um, Malibu Comics. There was all these comics that the Joe Kubert Skull kind of led us to be able to try out for. And DC was one where we got to go in. And DC just really resonated. I mean, DC and Marvel, of course. Ramita's Raiders at the time. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but the Ramita's Raiders was the bullpen at Marvel Comics. And to get in there, it was high quality, you know. But not only that, it was just a real demand. And DC was too, but DC was a little more corporate structured, I feel like. And so uh, when we went there, they were like, we have two positions open in the bullpen. And I remember I told my friend, Rich Miller, who's an amazing artist. I was like, let's wear ties. Let's Let's, like take this seriously, you know. So we'd stand out. And sure enough, some of our other contemporaries got second interviews, I believe. Some of them were like, oh, I don't want to work in the bullpen. You know, I want a job drawing a comic. Me, on the other hand, was like, why wouldn't I want to work at DC Comics? Why wouldn't I want to be in the hollowed halls of like the lore of legends that walk through those halls and editors and writers and creators? That would be the dumbest thing to not try. And yeah, maybe I'll be a low life like in the bullpen drawing and stuff because that's what some people think of it as. So Rich and I went, we wore our ties and we ended up getting the jobs. And I'll tell you what my tryout was. It was a two page spread of, you know, the artist Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Oh, yes. Yeah. So he did this amazing two page spread. Um, it was like Batman as a pirate. I don't know if you remember those. Probably, those I think it was from yeah. Legends of the Dark Knight. Yeah, that yeah. series. The Dark Knight, yes. So we come back for our second interview. And they're like, all right, they send us to this little room in the, the building that was at 666 Madison Avenue, the Beast of 666. Did you ever hear that? That was what they used to call it. That was the actual address. Very fitting. And they take me into an office and they're like, all right, you have an hour. They open up these two pages. They slide them across to me. It's Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Amazing. Freaking. I, don't even, I couldn't even draw that good today. Batman flying over a pirate ship, and a lot of it's missing. It's been whited out. And they're like, now you have to redraw in his style, finish it, because that's what happens in the bullpen. Like, you, you might get a thing in, and they might say, oh, you know what? Batman's pirate outfit or whatever Batman's outfit's completely wrong. You have to redraw it. Like, so you'd have to white out these characters or do a paste up over them in the actual comic pages of how you redrew them. So that was my tryout and Rich Miller's tryout. And I, I was probably the, one of the worst drawings they probably ever saw, but somehow they let it pass and I got in as a bullpen artist where I was working every day, um, you know, back then prior to digital, 
everyone would send in their comic pages via UPS. And so you might get someone's artwork, John McDonough, you know, his Superman pages would come into the editor in a FedEx, you know, maybe eight to 10 pages or whatever. And as that page gets geared up and finished, they then give it to you and we'd have a rubber band version of the whole issue. And then I would take it page by page and go over it with the editors and we would do all the lettering corrections. And You know, it's funny because we used to call ourselves the, the nip and tuck crew. <laughs> we called ourselves that because a lot of times artists would draw Batman's cod piece or his crotch like very large or Superman's nether regions would be giant or Catwoman's <laughs> chest would be so gigantic that you'd be like, all right, you got to do a, a nip and tuck. And we would like go and do all these fixes at him of fixing these characters' bulges in their breasts and camel toes and all these other things that a lot of people don't realize happened back then. And a lot of times they were challenging us. You knew that that artist was like, I'm going to draw nipples on every person just to see what happens. And they would mess with you. It was almost like a conversation sometimes. No joke that we'd be having with this penciler or inker of like what they could get past us. And, you know, the editors and us would always go back and correct them. And and it wasn't always that wasn't always the case. Sometimes it would be like lettering had to move or or an outfit changed or they did the wrong costume or things like that that you'd have to go back. and, And I got the privilege of going and correcting those. I have a lot of great things I got to correct over time and a lot of I was really going to say are there stories. particular titles that you worked on more often than others or ones that stood out to you where you're like oh I'm fixing this you know this pencilers work oh my god there was a few well you know it was really an exciting time because each of us in the bullpen there was a bunch of us artists and there was also one really old guy what was his name Bob oh Bob I'm sorry I forget your name he was a colorist and he'd been coloring since like the 70s something 60s maybe even he was so amazing kind of crazy I loved him he was kind of nutty but we had all these characters in the bullpen as you can imagine the bullpen was incredible just a harness a ball of energy. And so we each had our, our pages that would come into our, our project manager, um, Andy Marinkovich at the time, and he would dole out what, what needed to be worked, what was urgent. Charlie, you work on this, better did I work on that. So one of the books I got to work on that was really exciting was The Death of Superman. That was really exciting. Wow. And getting to work on that was see those come across your desk. And then also getting to see the new iterations of Superman and Hill and all of that behind the scenes. How freaking exciting, right? It was so secret. Like, I didn't even know initially that Superman was going to spring into other character, you know, these other characters were going to come back, you know, as Superman. But we did get to see those issues beforehand. I also became what was called a cover correction artist. And so Rich and I, besides doing interiors, the pressure to do the covers, there were so many comics coming out at that time for DC that we had to kind of be focused on covers. So a lot of times they would just bring covers to Rich and I and we'd work on those and maybe we'd be working on an interior book at the same time, usually. But the other guys would be just doing an interior book, an interior book, an interior book. Rich and I would be doing the covers. And the fun thing about the covers, I got to do all those Death of Superman covers with Rich. We both tag teamed those. I got to do a bunch of Legion of Superhero. I mean, I did so many covers. And what I mean by covers was I was doing corrections on them. I was also doing the preliminary roughs for lettering. So what that would look like. And that was really fun because I was doing the placement of lettering, how the lettering might look and kind of giving an idea to the letters. Now, it was Todd Klein a lot of times and then these other amazing, incredible letters. So I just was being creative and having fun. And sometimes they might stick to what I gave them or the editor might let, let me do it. And then Todd Klein would be like, cool, this is cool. I'm going to do this. Or sometimes he'd be like, yeah, that's a terrible kid. Like I'm going to do this Todd <laughs> Klein way. I mean, he always did something incredible. But I remember getting feedback on one of the covers I did. I think it was the um, a Flash series where he put the speedometer on the, the cover. Oh, I don't yeah. know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I came up with that idea with the editor. We talked, we just went over the cover. Just quick little meetings. You'd go up there for five minutes and talk about it or whatever and i was like yeah let's do a speedometer one of us i don't remember and you're just talking about what will make this fun and then we'll 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 each issue it'll click or whatever that was fun and then todd took that and i think i think it was those covers where he's like who's doing these curtis the, the covers editor said hey you got a nice compliment todd Klein asked who was doing these and he said he's doing a good job or something like that and i was like whoa really you know so my my really young self right out of dc comics getting a compliment like that 
meant a lot because I, quite honestly, I don't think I was very good at lettering and stuff, but I was trying my best. I was having a lot of fun with it, really being creative with letters on fire or letters made out of rock or you know, whatever, all the different ways you can do a cover, you know, in the 90s. Well, so, and so, it sounds like a lot of this work, like you're saying, you're kind of like the special crack team, right? Yes. How did you get to the point or did you get to the point where you actually got to have your name in the credits? Like they said, yes, Charlie LaGreca is doing this work. Like, how did that work? Well, okay. I'm going to tell you a few stories if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, I'm having fun. This is diamond stuff right here. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, okay. So a lot of the corrections, you're right. A crack team is great because the guys that were in that room, really special people to me because we just had so much fun. We went and saw movies together. We nerded out together you know we found out about the weekly dc comic editorial you know drink offs that they would have at night we'd go to those and i got to meet so many of the editors and so many good friends that were editors and i'd go hang out in their offices and we'd go play magic the gathering in the conference room you know when everyone was gone home and the conference room with all of its freaking amazing toy figures and history behind glass while we're playing magic the gathering you know in new york city and i'm talking about the new offices because the other cool thing adam is that we got moved from the beast of 666 we got moved to right across from the david letter and we went from a production room bullpen that was what you would think like from the Daily Planet. It was like double doors open to this room with no windows, right? That was the, the original Madison. All the cubicles were bright red for DC Comics, like Superman red. And that was really cool. And you each had your own little cubicle, but high walls, so you couldn't even see each other. You would have to like, you had your little rolly chair and your art table and you draw and you could talk to each other, but like you couldn't see each other. And we used to always play games with each other in our cubicles then. But looking back and I was like, geez, there was no light. I was working 40 to 60 hours a week drawing in there. I always stayed after work because I loved being in the, the bullpen and just doing overtime. And then we got moved to the new offices, which are now gone, sadly, because they moved to Burbank, which really made me sad because New York to me is comics publishing. And we had a new office that had glass walls that looked at the marquee of David Letterman, right? And this amazing architecture of the New York building right outside. My art table was like a thousand dollar art table. You know, we all had these amazing, beautiful art tables, very expensive. And, and honestly, it was fantastic. So getting to like how that ushered me into working on actual comics and being creative, because you're right, at that time, in my heart, I kept wanting to draw comics, right? And I actually had a contract with DC that if I created anything while I was an employee of them, they would have ownership of it. So think about that. So you had to be careful. So some of the guys were creating stuff under fake names and things like that. And, you know, some of the, the corrections I, as editors, get to trust you more, you start getting better and better projects. So Charles Kochman and Steve Corte, who were doing some of the licensing work downstairs. Um, There's another guy, David, all these great guys doing licensing work really, really started trusting me a lot, which was fantastic. And Rich Miller, I think as well. So they would bring stuff to us and be like, hey, uh, Jose Garcia Lopez was doing all the designs of Batman for Batman Forever, all of them. And I got to see them all before any of the public got to see them. But the problem was, is the movie industry kept changing the costumes so much and so quick that they couldn't send these things back to Jose to redraw. So they would have to throw us these really badly done sketches or ideas. An artist there on set was trying to capture or the costume or whatever. And then we would have to reinterpret that for the toy line or the comics so they could have a turnaround model sheet of Mr. Freeze or Batman or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah. So some of that stuff was really great because the editors start trusting you more. So they would come up and say, hey, I need you to redraw all these Mr. Freezes in, in Jose's style. It's a lot of work, but can you do it? You know, I got to redraw some Mad Magazine pages. I got to redraw some Superman children's books and Batman children's books and Batman, an animated coloring book, things like that, where they just couldn't send them back and draw those. So as as the editors got to trust us more, we would do overtime work on that stuff. And here's a sad story I will share. Paul Levitt, bless his soul, came in one time and he would give these tours. Paul Levitt, the president, the writer of Legion of Superheroes, right? Like, I love his work. He's coming through the bullpen. He brought people uh, to our desks and he would let them see, you know, oh, what they were working on. A lot of times we would give tours to people and 
he comes in and he's he's like, Charlie, tell us a little bit of what you're doing. And I'm like, oh, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and blah, blah, blah. And, da, 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 da. and he's like, yeah, so these guys aren't really artists. <laughs> but, you know, you can see how they're kind of doing stuff. And also, he kind of like looks at me like, hmm, is your job even necessary? And then he leaves. <clears throat> and yeah. And then seriously, like, I don't know, a few months later, news comes that they're going to be getting rid of one of our jobs. So there had been rumblings that one of our jobs was going to be cut, which didn't make sense because honestly, I was working 60 hours a week. I was putting extra overtime in and working on the books. I loved my job. But in a way, Adam, I needed to be kicked out of the nest. I wanted to draw comics. I wanted to draw stuff for a living. And quite honestly, if I stayed in the bullpen, I was always going to be correcting other people's work, not creating my own work. So Andy Marinkovich, I am forever thankful to him because I'll never forget the day he called me into his office and said, listen, you know, I've thought about it hard and you're the person I'm going to cut and I have to let you go. And, uh... It was like a brutal blow on one hand because I had to leave DC Comics, which just being in that bullpen meant so much to me. And all the artists I got to see come in, like all the artists who were working on books, they drop off their books, right? And they'd come and draw with us in the bullpen at an empty table all day with us. Imagine that. All the stars we got to see, all the, all the people that are icons to us. Walt Simonson would come and sit with us. And to have Walt Simonson, I mean, he was the kindest heart and he was just such a powerhouse. You'd just be like, watching him and he would tell us stories and they would tell us stories and we also became friends with people who were more our age like chris batista and rich faber and people like that from that time there's a lot of other people too i'm just forgetting right now but like they would come and sit with us and just they loved it too because they could sit and draw with us all day and we'd have fun together so they cut me loose and i'll never forget so many of the editors were there for me and knew that i'd been cut loose and they trusted me and they allowed me to do work for them and i started getting freelance work which then that freelance work led me over to Nickelodeon opened a publishing division and Chris Duffy, who used to be at DC Comics, became the main editor for Nickelodeon Comics. He hired me. I started doing work for him while I was inking and doing other work for DC. And then that led to Disney saw my work. Next thing you know, I get a cold call from Disney, Steve Bailing, who's the editor over there and Amy over there. And they're like, hey, we'd like you to do a tryout for your own creation. Do some ideas, run them past us because we saw you in Nickelodeon magazine. And I'd never met them before. So all of a sudden I'm having a calling card of sorts by my comics being out there in the real world. And it was slow. That first year I only made $11,000. I don't know how I survived in Manhattan on $11,000 with my heroin addiction. I don't know how I did. (laughs) (laughs) With my comic book addiction, really, with my comic book addiction. Well, let's talk about that because you had a comic strip published in Disney Adventures magazine, right? So this is something that that was such a big thing. I mean, every supermarket had Disney Adventures magazine just right there as you're checking out. I mean, I still have a stack of them. My wife didn't collect comic books, but she loved Disney Adventures magazine. So we still got them in the house. Yeah. You still have them? Absolutely. You know, old magazines. That's our stock and trade. So I have to ask, so what? When you're now getting to stretch your wings again, yeah, they're saying, we want you to create. You're not fixing other people's work on established characters. This is you. What ran through your head? How did you come up with an idea? Oh, it was fun to find. You know, I mean, the truth is, is luckily at the Joe Hubert school, we were doing that. He was teaching us how to create your own characters. That was part of the idea, right? Was to, to not only just draw mainstream comics, but your own comics of, of whatever you wanted or creations or things like that. So, and it's funny enough because all the things I created at Joe Kubert School, I didn't use any of those. I, I think I just, as a creator, I was, I had the opportunity to come up with some ideas. And so I did, you know, and, and I came up, I remember with an idea. I think my first idea was Gone Batty, which was all these bats living in a, an abandoned church, you know, taught with the bells and stuff. And I was going to do all these bat characters and stuff, which was really fun. And then, I also came up with KV Club, which stood for, I forget the Latin term now, but it's for hamsters and uh, rodents. 
of that kind, like <laughs> hamsters and guinea pigs and stuff like that. So I came up with the, the short term is cavey. They call them cavey. And so I thought, ooh, cavey club's kind of fine. It's like these little critters that live in a cave. And it's kind of a double meaning. And so I came up with that. And um, it was basically these, you know, the traditional comedic duo, the small guy and the big guy, you know, the typical trope. But for me, that was a good entry, you know, being the young artist that I was and writer and kind of also pulling from my influences of Bloom County and Calvin and Hobbes and, and things like that, you know, just Warner Brothers cartoons, things like that. I created that comic. Now, I, I floated those past Disney. And then Disney, of course, was like, "Ooh, we like this little kind of hamster gerbil weird team. Let's think about that. And they decided to name them the Hair Pair. They like said, hey, we, we don't think the KB Club works. Let's rename it the Hair Pair. Too high. So we got the goof troop over here. Now we got the hair pair. Yeah, got the hair. Goof troop. Oh my gosh. Yes. And so it was really cool. So I got to create the hair pair and ran by my first things with them. And that ended up being a six year contract. It was a yearly Whoa. contract. It was great. And it was, it was an actual, you know, like a lot of my friends who were getting hired at DC and Marvel where they were getting a workers contract just solely as an independent contract with them, right? Like exclusive. So I was getting an exclusive contract with Disney for this magazine. Of course, I could do illustration or other comics, but for the hair pair, they actually owned it. Same thing with Nickelodeon. They owned some of my comics. They actually bought me out with me. And I created some really fun stuff over there with Chris Duffy that I probably will never get to do because Nickelodeon still to this day owns it. So hair pair came out of creating that for Disney in the in my long ramble. And it was six years of work and every year I had a contract with Disney and it was so fortunate and so exciting and you know it's funny because to this day when I do conventions and stuff I always have usually I just collected finally because I got the rights back to the hair pair Oh. Um, so my editor was amazing. There was a term life. They don't normally do this, but someone secretly wrote in that my characters would come back to me after so many years. So I just got them back a few years ago and Tinto Press, and we haven't really announced it that widely yet. We did a Kickstarter and we released a collected edition of those hair pair. There's still some missing because there were so many I did, but I think we got 80 pages worth of my comic from the Disney days. That's so great. So, yeah. So those, those are possible, but it's funny because I'll do a convention and I always have a standup of the hair pair usually with other work and stuff. And everyone's all get someone be, Oh my. God, you didn't draw this, did you? And I'll be like, yeah, I'm the creator. And I'm like, I love the hair bear. So I won't get people that are like, pose and take pictures with me and then I'll be like so you want to buy some comics? And I'm like oh no no I just wanted to pose with you and say like I met you but I don't need to buy your comics oh, come on <laughs> buy the art guys buy the art buy the buy comics the art, that's so interesting so here you are you're going like from these corporate structures you know in Warner Brothers then to Nickelodeon then to Disney yeah, so you're looking yeah. for all the big and then you start moving the out into the independent spaces where you seem to really want to be though is that creating doing it yourself so who were kind of your mentors mentors in that area where you're saying, okay, I think I can start self-publishing. I can start doing these things. I would say it started at DC Comics. Um, one of the biggest people that I really, from the first time he set foot in our school and talked to us, two guys actually, was Steve Bissett. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Sure. He's run on Swamp Thing. He's incredible. Yeah. What an incredible human being. He came and talked to our school and did this sick talk on Japanese comics and horror in comics and the juxtaposition versus American comics and Japanese comics at the time. Blew my mind. But one of the things he said was, beyond your education here, one of the best educations you can have if you really want to do comics, kids, just go make your own, self-publish, do it. So that always stuck and rattled in my brain. And then being at DC Comics, the other thing that I saw was people who are slightly older than me or peers. When I was in the bullpen, yes, Wizard Magazine was on the top of my list. I got it all the time. But at the same time, I was going to Jim Hanley's universe and picking up stuff by Adrian Tomine, Paul Pope, Alex Robinson, Matt Kent, you know, all these guys who were my peers, or like I said, even slightly older than me, who were doing really kick-ass, cutting-edge stuff, you know, David Mazzucchelli, 
really forward thinking alternative kind of comic stuff that kind of just kept me just really wanting to do that stuff you know wanting to do and plus i think you and i saw image comics todd mcfarlane all those guys jumping into there doing their thing that that resonated for a lot of us wow if they can do it right i think that was a huge you know inspiration for a lot of people you know image comics and even larry martyr you know i've heard you guys show have you guys talked to larry martyr yet we haven't talked to him we've talked about him but we haven't talked to him no he's a great person and he i think is really responsible for the inclusion and diversity one of the factors forms of like really reshaping and you know opening the door to not just superheroes you know to like a deeper catalog so yeah that was some of the stuff as far as you know the work i was just a thrill to be working for disney to get that check from disney to get a check from you know nickelodeon to be up there to go into their offices to meet the people to get to know them to have dinners and go to san diego comic con be on panels and feeling like you're in a brotherhood I also joined the National Cartoonist Society in New York City, which that was a whole nother brotherhood. And we would have weekly meetings, which was just incredible to to meet so many other artists and people that were making comics. And then what's interesting about this is you start creating the idea of putting together your own convention. You talked about how this formative experience was going to this convention in Colorado, and then you create the official Denver Comic-Con. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I had produced an off-Broadway show with my brother of our own creation as well. It became a hit at the New York Fringe Festival and got its own off-Broadway run. So I was doing that as well. And that kind of showed me how to produce things and taught me a lot. I had my hands in all kinds of pots that I didn't realize would kind of influence me and teach me things along the way. And I returned to Colorado and I was dating my now wife. And, you know, she knew I was searching for something new. I think she sensed that, wow, you know, you have a lot of experience. You're doing all this stuff. I came back to Colorado. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, whether I was going to stay in New York or whether I was going to stay in my childhood home of Denver. What was I going to do? And out of that sprang the idea one night I was hanging out with one of my old friends that worked at DC Comics, Dave Vincent, Frank Romero, and Kevin Vincent. We were hanging out in my basement. And we were recording for my podcast. I said, let's do, we'll call it a long box, a deep dive, a long box dive or something, right? We'll go through my old long boxes and we'll just see what we find and laugh about it. We'll record it. So we recorded that. Those are actually recorded. Indie Spinner Rack right now is a podcast I did. It's, it's down right now. We have to put episodes back up. But you know how it is. You guys do it. It's so much fun listening to you guys go over your old comics. And afterwards, we just hung out for an additional four hours and we talked about, you know what Colorado doesn't have? It doesn't have a comic convention. So we became the four founders of Denver Comic Con. We created it pretty much that night. I went home and I went and saw my girlfriend at the time, Amy. She ended up saying, you guys have to do this. She threw a big dinner for us. And she bought like this giant freaking rack of, I don't know, something, some kind of meat and had it cooked all day. And then she threw this dinner for us where she basically said, you got to do this. And we bonded together and we're like, let's do it. Nerds unite. Let's do it. And we decided at that point, we spent like six or nine months creating like a business plan and an idea and eventually went and talked to the Colorado Convention Center. I did a pitch for them. You know, all of that. And out of that was birthed the Denver Comic Con. And it it came out of my parents' basement, literally out of a nerd's basement. So it came from that. And then I I had a lot of learning to do, though, of of a convention of that scale, because we initially only thought we were only going to do a small ballroom show that would only hold 8,000 people. That got moved. As we got closer to the show, it got moved to suddenly a 14,000-person show, you know, ballroom. Then we had to have two ballrooms. And the next thing you knew, we had like a giant hall that we had to, because it just kept, the, the tickets just kept selling. And so there was a lot of learning about scale and scalability. And there was a lot of things I've learned from that, as well as like who to trust and how, how people behave once a lot of money gets on the table and how people change. There's a real fundamental difference I've learned about, because I've always created, right? And so mm-hmm. I've always stayed rooted. I, I hope, I hope I always try and stay rooted in some sort of humility and reality of where I came from and the importance of comics. And that's one thing that breaks my heart with shows today is I feel like they're getting further and further away from 
these shows, it all came from a comic convention. And I, I being such a fan of comics, I don't want us to lose sight of that, you know, with the, with the moving time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm curious for you then, because obviously, you know, you're in Colorado, you're throwing a convention, you have the connection. How was Mile High <laughs> Comics involved in your early days? Like, did they have a big presence there? Like, did you get their notice where they were setting up booths and all that? Oh, my God. We had discussions about it because, you know, Chuck is a force. And the thing that took out the convention that I went to as a kid that Kevin and them did, Rich was another one of them over there who did it. There were so many great guys who did those shows. They were really gaining popularity. And some say that Chuck kind of talked about that show because uh, I think it was their third or fourth year he brought Stan Lee to Denver and had him do a tour of all the, the Mile High comics. And it kind of put the nail in the coffin, I believe. So it became... The good news was is we had a really good connection with Chuck. I worked at Mile High Comics. I came back from working at DC Comics, you know, and working now for all these different people. So I kind of had at least some sort of, you know, cachet that I could like kind of like be like, hey, I, I'm, I'm part of the industry now too, in a way. And my friend Dave Vinson, the same thing. He worked at Disney in their marketing department. So he too also worked for Chuck. So we both worked for Chuck. And then Frank Romero, my best friend, do you know what he did? He opened the uh, mega store in California that your friend talked about going to. Right? No, that was me that oh, went to it. Yeah. Wow. So you remember that store? Wow. Absolutely. Frank Romero was there. He was the manager of that store, him and Dave. They were sent specifically by Chuck to open that store. And Frank has amazing stories about lines around the block. And Yeah, we're going to have to talk to him about that then. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, yeah, you're going to have to like hypnotize him and get all the stories because he had <laughs> so many stories about that store and craziness and the, the times and, and having a store of that size, mm -hmm. that caliber, the largest in the world. Yeah. At the time. I and, mean, uh, the murals just out front that they put on that building. I was yeah, just like, what? Isn't that so cool? Right. So Frank got to Frank, I remember, had to move from Denver to go open that store. And it was a real big challenge. He's like, do I want to stay in Denver. Do I want to go. And so him and Dave moved and. They went and opened that store. And, and uh, so that was a, it was neat hearing you talk about that because I was like, oh my God, he was there. What a cool thing to have that be your local store. So we had all these connections with Chuck. So we knew it was fundamental in talking to Chuck. And I think also Chuck probably saw the reality of where the tide was going, that you're not going to stop this, this juggernaut that is convention from happening. The question is, was he going to do it or would someone else do it? And also, I don't know with all the work he has and running his business that he wanted to or had the desire to anymore or, you know, for that. And so we talked to him about it, just said, hey, let's be partners. And so we came up with the idea, how about we do a Friday party at your new warehouse? you got to see that, Adam. Have you heard about the new comic warehouse? Oh, I, I've seen the pictures online. I would love to go. Yeah. It's incredible. Like you thought the mega store was huge. This is like, what's next? I don't know. This is, it's giant. It's freaking huge. So we held the Friday party there and we had some of the creators. We didn't have all the creators. We were like, let's have a handful of creators. So it kind of became this like party, right? Pre, and we would give people their badges there was the idea. And it was, it was really kind of in a sense of community that I was trying to do. Like, let's bridge this community. There's no reason for us to be at odds with each other. Let's make it a communal thing. And then we can all go to the convention together. We also, you know, gave Chuck, I think, a booth that first year or something like as a sponsorship and things like that. I think he even had buses running to his store maybe oh. for the first two years. But wow. I don't know how that works. I can't remember how that works. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, that's obviously a lot of fun. Is there a particular convention moment that stands out to you, whether it was like a harrowing experience or just like an exciting, like, I can't believe we got this guest to come and everybody was so excited or what, what stands out to you from your years running that particular convention? And then it evolved, right? Yeah. Being a Denver independent comic and art convention. Yeah. So, you know, another friend of mine who produces shows always says there's always fire. The matter is, is putting them out before the, the attendees see the smoke. There's always fires when you're producing a show. It's just a matter of how you handle them, right? There have been a lot of fires. I have both good and heartbreaking stories. I don't want to get into heartbreaking stories, yeah. but I'm trying to really get past like um, any kind of bitterness or anger about certain things that went down. And so I'm trying to just let them go and remember that, you know, what are the joys that I have from it and learn from those other things and just be like, yeah, F that. I'm on. I'm moving on from that. It's not worth my time. But the, the fun stories that I can remember is from producing a show, I'll never forget when I was sitting on this main floor of the, the thing and I was with my walkie-talkie and I'm like giving them the go to open up the doors to let the first attendees of Denver Comic Con come in. And up the escalator is the first people coming up and there's a little kid dressed as, I think it was Captain America, you know, in his cosplay holding the hand of his, his mom. And I almost, it didn't bring me tears, it just brought me pure, powerful joy. You know, and everyone started screaming and I started screaming and we were all screaming as all these people came in as Denver ushered in its very first comic convention, you know. And so I remember that. I remember a really cool fire that we had to put out that was so scary. There was these guys that had like a zombie car or something and they showed up too late to the convention. You know, when you're doing a convention of that size with a giant convention, there is an entrance on the first floor that usually goes up to the parking lots in the top where you have entry to these big giant doors of where you can put the vehicles and you can usher the vehicles onto the con floor and things like that. But it's the convention floor, a lot of people don't realize is like three stories or four stories up, right? So you have to go up this big parking garage, drive these cars on there. Well, in order to get the cars on the convention hall, you have to follow all these union rules and all these things. So they had to be there at like six to seven or eight in the morning to get their cars. Once you get past that time, union rules, things like that, you cannot drive anything that's gas powered or it could cause a fire or cause a hazard of any kind or hurt people, you cannot pull that onto the floor. So these guys who had this zombie car or something, and I apologize, I don't remember, but it was like a black, crazy zombie beast of a car, which we were excited to have because I was trying to get as much of the community involved from artists to creators, to cosplayers. And we're sitting there and I get this call of red emergency, red emergency, Charlie, get down here, get down here, get down here now, now, now we got to meet. So I run down there with Frank and we're all meeting in the one of the people from the Colorado Convention Center is like, these guys, we're shutting the show down completely in 10 minutes because these guys blew past security with their car at the bottom floor. They somehow got past the little gate thing. They freaking flew past it, flew up to the top, and were trying to get onto the show floor. And the only thing stopping them was one of our volunteers and one of the security guards who literally were standing in front of the car saying, you're going to have to roll over us if you're going to come onto this floor. So they called me in and Frank in, and I was putting out another fire. So Frank was awesome. I love Frank because he's always cool-headed, and he's like, I got this, Chuck. I got this. I'll handle it. I was like, awesome. Go do it, Frank. So Frank had to go talk to this guy, and this guy was railing on him, I guess, and going off on him. And I didn't get to see it live, but he had to be his calm Frank self, which is great, and just kind of be like, look, you know, we have to follow protocols. You're going to shut this entire convention down. Do you really want that? We have 30,000 people here at this point now, and you're going to cost us all this money. The show would be shut down for the entire day. Think of all the refunds we would have to do. How many people would be pissed off? Wouldn't be op- wouldn't be able to open up for the next day. We also might be fined by the city. All these things. So Frank Romero saved the day and got this guy to calm the hell down. And we told him, look, at the end of the day, we'll bring your car on. 
tomorrow you'll get to spend the day, Saturday you'll be here, or whatever it was, or Sunday. Or Sunday, because it was only a two-day convention at the time. And so that was kind of like a fun, ridiculous, and you're always having stuff like that. Yeah, that's know? wild. Or celebrity yeah. stories who absolutely have to have their soy milk, you know, heated to the temperature of, you know, <laughs> 82 degrees or whatever, you know. Well, so on the other side of that, because it sounds like, yeah, the Denver Comic Con is just growing and growing. And then you have another show called The Dink. So what can you tell us about what's the difference between the two? Well, you know, I hope I can bring Dink back, you know, the Denver Independent Comic Art Show, because that really was harnessed purely. And the community really rallied behind that because it was such an artistic show. Like, Adam, I think you'd love it because it's just purely comics and art. Comics, art, graffiti, just art, just art. We don't, we, it's not that we're trying to be mean but we don't allow like print walls and things like that because the idea is we have these mass conventions to do all the big two stuff, to do all the mainstream stuff. This is just about people who are making comics, independent publishers, you know, it doesn't mean that there couldn't be a large independent publisher there, but it just means that we have to hone in just on comics and art, art being created. So, you know, what happened was that there was uh, some bad things that happened with Denver, the Denver show. I was now no longer president. I was no longer the producer of that show, but that said, I, I made me, one of my friends, Dan Crozier, stayed in touch with me and my wife too, just being like, well, what, what can you do that will make you happy? You know, I was in a really dark place and what could I do that would make me happy? And it came back to just comics. Just comics make me happy. And the creators of comics make me happy and the fans of comics and the collectors of comics make me happy. And so some of my fondest memories are those small shows where you have access to these creators, you know, and it's not so bigger than life that you can't even get to them, right? That it's really just honing the discussion back on just, a conversation about what's really truly most important about these properties that are giant now, all these Marvel movies that are so huge. How many people watch the movies, but they don't even know the lore. They don't know the, right. They don't know the full stories. They don't even understand the histories and legacies of these characters and you know, all the different Spidey costumes and everything like that. So I saw a real need for that with Dink and also a way I could support the community. We could support the community. We as a whole could support these indie publishers and put money in their pocket and turn people onto new properties, give people new um, careers of sorts and new opportunities and other venues and ideas, right? And so Dink came out of that. We were four years very successful. I mean, we were barely making it by money-wise because it takes so much money to run a convention, you know, to bring people out, to fly them in, to put them up at nice hotels. And it went with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Our volunteers, my co-producer, Bonnie Graham, Kelly Shortenqueer, who I love to death, another person who was one of my key people. There are so many good people that I'm giving them shout-outs because they really were instrumental in making such a successful convention. And it was four years running. We were going to do the fifth convention. And now, you know, with the pandemic, you know, who knows when we'll return. And, and I'm hoping that one day we can return, but it's really a difficult time. And, and I, I wouldn't want to be responsible for doing something irresponsible at this time, you know, as much as I want to be back in those halls and doing stuff. I just couldn't live with it if we had one person get sick or die. Yeah, obviously you want to keep it safe. And so in those times though, you are producing Mm -hmm. a ton of work, a lot of special things that are coming out all around the world. So let's start talking about some of your current projects. For example, you have a series called The Environmental Justice Chronicles. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk us Mm -hmm. about this collaboration out there. Well, you know, what's really neat because this happened while I was at Denver Comic Con creating it. And an old friend of mine brought to me this idea of creating, you know, I didn't know much about, quite honestly, environmental justice and the the right that every person on the planet deserves to breathe clean air and have a safe environment in their city and to be looked after and protected, right? We all have that right to to have a clean environment where we live and and that all of us are looked after and our health is looked after as well as the natural setting we're living in. 
and that it's not being toxified or ruined. And stuff. So a friend of mine said, hey, would you be interested in doing this project? I said, yeah, you know, I, that sounds great. You know, I had to do a deep dive. I had to learn a lot about environmental law and environmental justice and what it was. And then I had to come up with the concept of how we would write a story and how that would look and how we could empower people to look out for their own community. And um, out of it, we did this one issue, Adam. We thought, I thought, oh, cool. This will be one of those comic projects I do, which I've done several of. I've done a lot of corporate little things that a lot of people don't even know about something for allied waste or a trash company or this tech company or something. People never even know you do them. And I thought, oh, this will be something small I do. And lo and behold, it became a hit. It got so much recognition. Schools picked it up. Thousands and thousands of copies have been published. And all of a sudden, that one little 18-page comic I did um, has now, we made a second issue, which was a big hit. Now we're doing a third issue that is more about the rights, uh, understanding how to campaign under a kind of a uh, green kind of climate policy of looking out for the environment and the community around you and how that would look. This is all done through discussions with the Center for Urban Reform and you know city universities in New York. And we kind of just discuss what would be pivotal and helpful to communities. And the really cool thing, Adam, is I was just talking about this about my wife the other day, is we've actually seen people use this comic book and use the le legal stuff we give them in the comic to their advantage when they've had issues in their community. Um, we just saw a fight recently in Queens where, um, unfortunately, one of their council people was looking to sell land rights or give away land rights, you know, surreptitiously that would have toxified or polluted the air or done something pretty drastic. And when people got word of it, it's through our efforts with the comic and what we've done that people were like, whoa, we can band together, we can form, we can stop this, and they did end up stopping it. So we have these real-world things where our comic has actually affected people society-wise. And, you know, when you're going through a pandemic and all this stuff, like, it means a lot when you're creating comics to be like, wow, I can actually have some sort of effect on change, you know? Yeah. Well, um, what's yeah. interesting too is you're not even just you know, like you say, you're getting into schools and things like that. You're getting into museums. You you are setting yeah, up yeah. these these experiences for people. So talk to us about this transmissions gone viral thing that you have going wow. on. Thanks, dude. Thank you for humoring me all this time and talking about this. I really appreciate it. You know, it's just one of those natural progressions where I just keep my head down. I'm I'm not real good at like I love tooting my horn for everyone else. That's why I created conventions because I'm good. I can sell everyone on you right now, Adam, I can be like, this guy's the best, right? But when it comes to me, I'm not good. So uh, I really appreciate this conversation. And the natural thing was I just keep my head down and work and you never know where it's going to land. And the fact that my comics with the environment and the environmental work and advocating for communities really paid off the, I got to be one of the artists that was kind of thrown into the pot, Blue Telescopes, a production co a, a company that put my name in the hat or the ring to, for this comic with the New York Science, uh, you know, Hall of Science for their comic transmission's gone viral. And you know what's really neat about this? It was how to educate kids about what a virus is prior to that. Like, we didn't even know the pandemic was on the horizon. We're talking three years ago or whatever, right? So we're working on this cool mystery squad, the science mystery squad, these kids who are like going around their neighborhood and they discovered this virus. And the whole point is the kids who are reading it or, and they did, a, they did a digital copy in the museum that you can play. Then they have digital copies online and they have actual hard copies as well of the graphic novel that you can get. So there's three, there's kind of a three-pronged kind of cool thing. And as far as I know, no one else had really kind of gone into this depth about what a virus is, but the writer and I and the team there had, and what a fantastic team I got to work with. And we created this comic about these kids solving this mystery out in their neighborhood, you know, seeing a dead bird and what, what's happening with all the animals and people getting sick and what is this and what is this virus? And so the kids, as they read each chapter, it's five chapters, they're slowly learning scientifically what a virus is, but they're also learning to solve it. And they're playing these games along the way that, that I didn't create the games. That was a whole other team. And they did a great, really cool thing of taking my art assets and creating a game. 
And so by the end, the kids learn what a virus is and they solve what the virus is. Which ends, I'm not going to say what it is. You have to read it. And um, it really got noticed by the New York Times and other people because when the pandemic hit, they're like, whoa, this is cool. You can read this and it can teach you about what a virus is. And it just became this natural, amazing, wonderful kind of just, wow, you never know what you're going to create as an artist that's going to end up being useful down the road. And that now has led into the United Nations, which they're taking notice of me and an exhibit at the museum at Billy Ireland Museum. I'm like, what is going on in my life? Do they have the right guy? Are you sure you don't want Todd You're staying very current as well, because obviously the big thing that's exploding in the art scene right now is NFTs. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, yeah. Talk, talk to me about just your, your brief uh, thoughts on why NFTs are the thing to, to get into now and, and what you're noticing in the independent art community surrounding them. Well, I am kind of like, I wish I was as good as him, but I consider myself like Wally Wood. I don't know if you've ever heard of that artist. Sure. But Wally Wood yeah. was always said to be hanging out with the young kids. Um, <laughs> and he was always learning. He was always like trying to stay on like what was hot and what was the pulse. And I think I really just get a, a maybe like me. Like him, I get a rush out of seeing what's new, like podcasting, I got a rush out of initially, right? So NFTs, you know, I'm hoping that we can do something with the United Nations. We're going to be doing this really cool thing with the Earth Defenders, people who are protecting the Earth. They're called Earth Defenders. So we're going to be doing a comic about that, and I'm hoping we can tie that into NFTs. But besides that, I'm creating my own NFT collection. I actually sold my first one, and I was one of the very first. I don't want to talk like I was I was there at the very beginning of it, and I released a very, a very first collection last uh, April and May, and it sold out. And there are these things called 3D Robopunks. And I'm doing a really cool collaboration with my brother where it's a whole world building thing. And there'll be more to come as I'm, I'm combining efforts with other, other networks of mine. And we'll be creating something really cool out of it, which I can't announce yet. But basically, we're going to create a whole world of these robots that everyone who buys something is getting this radio play, this theatrical play that goes along with it. It's awesome. dropped to them. And so it's this whole story that's going to be unveiled uh, with these 3D Robopunks that I'm hand designing and then they're made into these 3D, 3D images. And it's going well. It's really fun to dip my toe into it. It's really fun to like, like you said, to embrace this new technology and new, new, new storytelling methods, right? Like what are the new methods of storytelling? How can I, how can I get people engaged in, in storytelling and be excited about nerd stuff, you know? Yeah. Th- I mean, this is just, it's so exciting. You have so much going on. So that's wonderful. Thank you for these stories. I mean, so I, I know that our listeners are going to be so like, what? He was working on the death of Superman comics. He's working on this. Like that's yeah. going to blow their minds. I, I, if anybody wants to find just your latest projects and stay in touch with what you're doing, where can they find you? The CLGV.art, Charlie, La Greca, Velasco.art.art. So CLGV.art. And you can go there and you can see a lot of my work. Um, you can contact me through that. The cool NFT story will be dropping. I'll be posting the third issue of the Environmental Justice Chronicles that will be coming out. I'm hoping, COVID willing, I will be attending the Billy Ireland Museum and doing a talk there with my artwork, which is really exciting thing for me. That would be like a dream come true. You know, I'll be dropping, you know, the NFTs and then telling the United Nations stories that will be coming out. So a lot of, a lot of really exciting aspects of, that I'm psyched about, you know? Yeah. Um, and thank you, Adam for an amazing podcast. It's so much fun to listen to. Uh, Oh my God. I just love listening to you guys. And I love that you guys are so sincere that it makes me want to just keep hanging in the room with you guys. I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. And I don't know if you know this, but you need to look this guy up. One of my most favorite people on the planet and cartoonists. You have a voice almost identical to him. His name is Alec Longstreth. Alec Longstreth. Every time I listen to you, I'm like, oh my God, it's Alec. You sound <laughs> like you sound like you're his brother. And Interesting. Uh, he's an amazing dude. Yeah. So if you can look him up, look him up. I uh, will. Because you totally remind me of him. 
Well, we really appreciate you being with us. And I have one little bonus question here. Go ahead. Go ahead. What is it? So obviously, you know, you're, you're aware we have an interesting relationship with Rob Liefeld since the uh, early days oh, yes. of the podcast. Oh, yes. <laughs> so for you, like during this time, obviously Rob Liefeld, very big, influential, selling so much. That's what the kids were into. In your days at DC, did you ever like get the information like, hey, we need to get more Liefeld style, you know, drawing and angles and things in here or in the other side, in your convention life, any of that, have you had it? interactions with Rob? No, I haven't. I hate to drop that bomb on you, but it's been purposeful <laughs> in a way because Rob kind of scares me. He's kind of freaky. That's what I hear. I mean, yeah. listen, here's the deal. Like as a kid, I, I loved Rob Life. I still think the energy he brought and the craziness and the bonkersness of his characters and creations still this, to this day are resonating with us, right? Domino, Deadpool. But he's always been kind of like this persona, kind of like Dave Sim or something that is kind of like causes a reaction. You're kind of like, whoa, do I, right. do I want to hang out with him? Like, how's that going to be? Is it going to be fun? Is it, do you want to meet your heroes? Some of your heroes? Yes, you want to meet some of them. I just want to have them as being this amazing person in my mind. I have ran into him at, at conventions. I've had other friends. One of my friends, Brian Deemer, has a great Rob Liefeld story. There's a lot of people out there with good Rob Liefeld stories. Yeah. And I also have seen him at conventions where, you know, he purposely is like the co-creator of Deadpool. And then you know, he, he has to be sat away from other people because you can't have them sit together because there's such a clash of like owners claim, things like that, right? Lots um, of history there, know, yeah. Yeah, lots of history there. So I sadly don't have anything, but I did make fun of him a lot on the Indie Spinner Rack and I did make a theme song for him, which you can't hear now, but maybe I'll send it to you if I can dig it up. And, you know, I have a nerd band called H2 Awesome where we just do all kinds of music about nerd rock and- Oh, that's awesome, art, yeah. Art, 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 so super fun. So, you know, I, I had- um. Hope to one day, I don't know if you ever even saw that song or knew that I did a song about him, but it was all basically kind of talking about how much I love Liefeld and his three fingers and his foreshortening, his lack of backgrounds. And you know, just... I also created okay. a Rob Liefeld parody song. It was when Rob Liefeld was finally releasing like like an issue of Youngblood, but it had been like a year. This was the celebration of Rob is finally back doing Youngblood. <laughs> anyway. That's so funny. But and, yeah. you know, I feel for yeah. any comic creators, because the thing is, as any comic creators out there, artists, you know, like we sit at our tables 12, 14 hours a day, and mm -hmm. then you get 18, it takes you however long to get, you know, 22 pages done. And then someone reads it in 10 minutes is like, okay, where's the next one? And you're like, I'm still, I'm still, <laughs> still trying to draw, you know, um, so it's, it's not an easy gig. It's not an easy gig, but yeah. he is a hilarious character. I would love if you have him on the show. You know, I got to have Dave Sim on the show and it was. It was kind of a difficult thing to have. I'm, you know, like Rob, he was such a poster child for a lot of us, like, you know, this cool young creator, you know, yeah. and he, he was put everywhere on TV commercials and he just became super popular, you know? And then you realize it's like, like those child actors that become famous are like kind of crazy in a way. You're like, do I really want them to be the poster child? I don't know. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. You can't deny his success. When he yeah. puts out yeah. comics, they sell. People like him, you know? So it's like... Yeah. Yeah, he has, he taps into some kind of great, you know, energy. Yeah. That, and, and he's a great and, promoter, man. I mean, he yeah, has kept himself yeah, relevant yeah. somehow. He really has, hasn't he? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I really appreciate those guys for that. And Neil Gaiman and all those guys. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Steve Bissett, all those guys fighting. Alan Moore, all those guys fighting for creators rights. Dave Sim, Jeff Smith, all those yeah. guys really trying to pave the way for creators rights. And because, you know, the reality is, is. It's, isn't it nice to go see the movies? You know, the credits at the end, seeing nods to different creators and mm -hmm. them pulling from actual look. Like, as a comic nerd, 
how much fun is it to see them actually pull storylines from actual comics? And yeah. I mean, it means exciting. a lot. Yeah. Kevin Feige you know? gets it. So we appreciate that at least, you know, like, we appreciate you, Kevin Feige. <laughs> it's funny. One last thing I'll say too, is yeah. you know, listening back on your episode, you know, I was in DC comics the year that Marvel bought heroes. Um, what was it called? Heroes, uh, yeah, heroes, heroes world. world. Yeah. And, Dude, I was in the halls of DC Comics. You know, when you, when you hear stories about people being like, dude, the halls were crazy that day. Like, you know, you're always like, oh, that's like a euphemism. No, the halls were freaking crazy for like a year at DC Comics because we were all wondering the bottom was dropping out, trading car, the distribution. They bought Skybox. I don't know if you remember that. It was a, yep. they bought, I think it was Fleer. Yep. Tops, they bought Fleer. Yep. They bought Fleer. They bought Skybox. They, they were buying up all these properties, but meanwhile, they weren't installing the infrastructure to make it happen. Marvel, I, a lot of people don't know this, all bankrupt. Shit was going down. Meanwhile, us at DC Comics being an artist, they were like, at least we're owned by Warner Brothers. We really were kind of thankful that a giant corporation owned us because everyone was like, Marvel's going to go up belly up and is it going to hurt DC? And then there was also talk about Warner Brothers is going to buy up some of the Marvel properties. Like imagine if we had got Spider-Man instead of Sony and Daredevil and things like that. Like I say, us. What <laughs> 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 happens when you play for the DC Bullets? You're like, yeah, I'm part of the baseball team. I'm part of the club. <laughs> uh, well, this has been really fun, Charlie. I mean, this, Dude, this I'm, been I'm sure we could talk forever, but yeah. <laughs> Good. And I, am, I really appreciate you. If I can just give one last shout out to all the fans of comics and also George Perez, Jorge Perez, that he's oh, going yeah. through a tough time. I, he, what a wonderful, I love that guy. There's so many comics creators I love. So I just want to like thank him for all of his work. Go hit him up, tell him thank you for his amazing work, read his stuff. Go thank any creator for that matter and read their work because, you know, it's just tough biz, man. It's tough biz and a lot of heart and spit that goes into making these little funny books. <laughs> and that does it for our interview with Charlie LaGreca Velasco. Thank you so much, Charlie, for joining us and sharing those stories. I mean, just think about it, guys. He's someone who was there for it all. Not this marquee name, perhaps, that you know, and yet he was in the thick of it, fixing those Death of Superman, Raid of the Superman, so many other DC comics that you probably picked up back in the day would not have looked the way you remembered them without his touch-ups without what he was doing there plus just the amazing experiences at conventions and beyond i mean he has seen it all and still loves comics i think that is the thing that we'll take away most from it that's why we do the podcast that's why you listen to the podcast and he's right there with us on the cutting edge of all the technologies all the ways to share your comic book enthusiasm so again charlie thank you so much for joining us and thank you for listening checking out another edition of the wizard files of course we will continue on on here we have main episodes we have mini episodes we are hoping to get some bonus episodes headed your way very shortly here as 1996 was a year where wizard really started releasing a lot of special editions and things of that nature that focused on either a specific character or a specific trend so we will be bringing those to you with some special guests and yes we will have more wizard staffers on to actually discuss full issues they a lot of them were readers before they started working at the magazine or were just fans of the work that was going into the magazine while they were doing it and so there's a lot of fun to be had there we hope that you will stay connected with us on twitter at wizards comics on instagram at wizards underscore comics and hey we'll throw this out there as well if you are a comic book creator if you are someone who is involved in the world of 90s comics feel free to contact us reach out let us know that you're available to tell your stories or if you your 
yourself happen to have a connection. Maybe you've interviewed them for your own blog or podcast in the past, and you think that they would love to talk about Wizard Magazine and their relationship there. We can be reached at wizardscomicspod at gmail.com or any of those social media sites we mentioned. Be sure to subscribe also to the YouTube channel as we continue to bring you exciting new content there. Thank you so much for listening, but for now, we're closing the files. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.